Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. Today, as part of a series on science in the USSR, I'm delighted to say that we have an interview with Simon Ings, the author of a wonderful book on the subject, Stalin and the Scientists. Simon began his career writing science fiction stories, novels and films, writing books on perception, the eye and natural history, 20th century radical politics, the weight of numbers, the shipping system, dead water, and augmented reality, wolves. He co-founded and edited ARC magazine, a digital publication about the future, before joining New Scientist magazine as its arts editor, and writing Stalin and the Scientists. He very kindly agreed to be interviewed for our little show. As usual, I detained my guest for a very long time, and so I've split the interview into two parts, and I had to re-record my half of it because of a technical fault. But hopefully that won't impede your enjoyment of it too much. I think it was a wonderful discussion, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed having it. So we'll start with Simon Ings, Stalin and the Scientists, The Bolshevik Philosophy of Science and the Revolution. So, Simon, thanks very much for coming on the show. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Thank you. Stalin and the Scientist is this wonderful book about the intersection of politics and science in the USSR, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So in the first few chapters, you point out that there's this strange dichotomy. In some aspects, the socialists were totally radical, but in other respects, they were following the same ideas that previous czars and emperors had had about reforming Russia. This desire to change this vast territory filled with disparate peoples, from a sort of centralised and top-down kind of way. And it also seems that just as the ideas behind communism found themselves adapted, and perhaps twisted to the specific circumstances of Russia, so the scientific ideas found themselves twisted to the specific ideology of communism, and the needs of governing Russia. So that we're all on the same page, it would be great if you could give us a historical picture of Russia before the revolution, and the events of that revolution. Yes. Um... Russia has always been a remarkably wealthy country that has never found a way of realizing its wealth. Um, at the time that the Tsarist regime was falling apart, it was the fifth largest uh, producer of iron, uh, the smelted iron. Um, it was the world's largest grain exporter. Uh, and yet... Its vast natural resources were remained largely untapped, and what resources it did have, in particular grain, went into very odd places. Um, a lot of the grain that wasn't assigned to export was actually used to make vodka to <laughs> essentially narcotize a population that was remarkably ill-policed because the um, Russian Empire under the Tsars had, throughout the 19th century, been growing at a rate that would add a territory the size of France to um, its um, uh, to its territory each year until it had finally become larger than the surface of the visible moon. The scale um, of of this country is sometimes hard for Westerners to appreciate, and especially English people to appreciate, because of the uh, the weird projection qualities of most of our mappings. So <laughs> Britain turns out to be as large as Ukraine on most, you know, on Google Maps and so on. Uh, it's not, and Russia's really big. So um, that's the first thing to say about um, uh, Russia is just the the sheer scale of it, and also. It's an incredibly hostile environment. The further east you go in Russia, the colder it gets. That's a bigger temperature differential than north-south. 
and large parts of Russia are relatively infertile. This matters less now because we have learned to develop crops and to breed crops that can handle relatively poor soils. And this is something we'll, we'll get on to, I'm sure. But at the time of the revolution, most of the um, Russian Empire was simply not particularly fertile. It was incredibly hard to farm there. And this shaped both the science and the politics because the ec- the economic system by which most of the Russian Empire ran was not capitalist for the very good reason that capitalism needs to generate surpluses. The whole point of capitalism is that you can acquire capital and you acquire capital by selling surpluses. But the um, within the Russian Empire, your agricultural economics is predicated not on providing surpluses, but from protecting against starvation. And so you have a tradition of uh, communal living and collectivization that long predates the Soviet Union and is about getting hold of resources and saving them in case of a failed harvest, in case of a hard winter. We've actually got very good records of the weather in the these territories uh, that go back to about 400 AD. And so we know how hard the climate is. And not only was your economics shaped by this hostile environment, your science was shaped by it as well. I got... One of the many darlings that I had to kill while preparing this book was the uh, fascinating life story of um, Russia's most revered anarchist, Peter Prince Peter Kropotkin. What I found fascinating about Kropotkin's politics is that it developed directly out of his science. Kropotkin, like most of his generation, was fascinated by Darwin, um, by ideas of evolution and how evolution might how the mechanisms of evolution might work um, but he took to task the idea that animals species are in competition with each other and he did this not out of political conviction at first but out of his understanding of how life in the tiger is lived during winter because he knew full well that in his own territory, in the in the forests of Siberia, species would effectively cooperate in order to survive the winter. The, that um, there was a kind of communal living that took place just in order for anything to survive. Now you can unpick that and say, well, where is the intentionality here, and what do what do different species actually intend by their actions? Um, And he was a smart man and he understood the problems associated with this idea. But he said, this is not just raw competition. Something more interesting is going on. And so this idea of a communal living and about sacrificing the individual for the species were ideas that actually did have scientific currency at the time in order to explain how the um, ecology of the more extreme territories of the Russian Empire actually functioned. So there's people politically here who are hoping to draw an analogy and say, we're observing how nature works in terms of the animal kingdom and how it's adapted to the harsh climes and environment of Russia. And we're going to try to use that for a model for how to govern with emphasis on individual self-sacrifice for the good of the common group and so on. 
Yeah, well, there's um, there's a wonderful expression I came across recently from Marvin Minsky, bless his heart, who talks about suitcase words. Um, uh, he's talking about, you know, machine learning. Uh, and he says the problem is, is that we have a, you know, we come up with a couple of circuits that learn something and we say, ah, they've learned. And we use this as a metaphor for how a couple of circuits behave. And then we forget that it's a metaphor. And we wander around talking about learning as if it's something that machines can do, which is it's it's actually not true. That's not what learning is. And um, Darwin provided um, not just Russia, but, you know, the, the whole of um, the whole of global culture, really, and particularly Western culture with a whole raft of suitcase words, which were then misappropriate, misprisoned, uh, misapplied. Um, sometimes creatively and sometimes to um, genuine uh, intellectual effect and sometimes catastrophically uh, as people rushed to come up with uh, political metaphors that sounded scientific. Uh, the um, idea of competition itself is a misapplication of a Darwinian idea and this took place in London almost at the moment when uh, Darwin's work was published and we're very familiar with that um, in Russia there was this strange misreading and sort of hungry metaphorizing of uh, communitarian ideas and uh, early ecological ideas uh, to describe a a new kind of politics that would be better than the autocratic regime of uh, Nicholas II, Alexander III. This discussion of suitcase words reminds me a lot of some of the physicists I talked to discussing their likes and dislikes of analogy. So an analogy is great until it gets you somewhere that's misleading, because people try to extrapolate too far from the analogy, or they forget that what they're dealing with is just an analogy to reality, and not the fundamental theory, not the fundamental reality that exists beneath that analogy. When you use an analogy, you have to be careful, because the use of an analogy is essentially the fact that it's it's kind of making use of the fact that concepts are already linked in people's brains in a useful way. But it can bring with it additional concepts in that bundle that you don't want linked together. So, for example, a good analogy for the expansion of the universe is that it's like the surface of a balloon that's being blown up. And that's useful because, in the sense that the points on the surface are moving away from each other as the universe itself expands. But then if you try to extrapolate that analogy too far, you might conclude that the balloon would burst if we expanded it too much, which, you know, we don't know necessarily about the universe. It's a perennial problem, and it never ceases to amaze me how bad we are at dealing with it. I suppose simply because it takes so long to unpick these arguments, and um, we're always trying to get to the next new idea we don't want to have to keep reinventing the wheel but sometimes you wonder you know we ought to take a step back i was recently i was recently in the audience when will self was um <laughs> doing a splendid deconstruction of the whole idea of art and science working together to produce work and um he got into a t dreadful barney with a professor of physics, actually, who talked um, about physics being the pursuit of um, ultimate questions, to which, you know, needless to say, Will Self smiled somewhat malignly and said, maybe you should take a course in philosophy. <laughs> um, 
but yes, um, physicists are, are, are very well aware of this. Any any decent scientist is very well aware of this. But it's it's very hard to have to keep reinventing the wheel in order to bring audiences with you. Um, I suppose the person who's done it best in recent times actually is is um, the, the, the Richard Dawkins, God bless him. And this is some years ago now where he came up with the idea of the intentional stance. You know, we have to talk about the giraffe acquiring a longer neck because it wants to eat the leaves in the tops of the trees because it's going to take too long to do anything else. But we have to be aware that it's a stance. It's not a claim. And um, that problem of misapplying or, or misconstruing or just being lazy, I think, frankly, with the vocabulary of the exact sciences is something about which the, the Bolsheviks have a, a, a lot to answer to, to be perfectly honest. I, I think they were they were fans of science at time before the um, Vienna Circle had actually, and, and Karl Popper, had actually created a, a workable philosophy of, of scientific methodology. And um, um, it, 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 consequently, a lot of Bolshevik science ends up at sea simply because it's not defining its terms with sufficient rigour. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk later about a lot of the aspects of Western science and philosophy that the Bolsheviks rejected and tried to find their own paths for later on. But when you talk about analogies in science that break down, how about the idea of particles as either billiard balls or water waves on a pond? There's this whole thing we have, the wave-particle duality that people are concerned about, but it all comes from physicists wanting to believe that either particles were like billiard balls, like pool balls, flying around ballistically and hitting each other, or else they were like waves that could interfere with each other, like ripples on a pond. But those are both just analogies that we use, and that have their advantages, but they're not necessarily true. Quantum mechanics comes along and says, well, actually sometimes they behave like one, sometimes they behave like the other, and it's really not going to lend itself to a simple macroscopic analogy that you can always apply, where you can always say, your idea of how these things will behave will be exactly as this analogy is. These areas where the ability to explain science to a layman breaks down, where our preconceived notions about what science should be, these are the areas that the Bolsheviks reject because they had these notions about what science should be, and they thought that science should get simpler and easier to understand, and they don't like things that contradict this. So for the historical context, very briefly, in Russia in the 19th century, there's tension between the people who are trying to reform the system there are reformist Tsars like Alexander II. Prior to his rule, many people in Russia were serfs, which is a sort of indentured servitude, or even slavery, where the peasants are tied to the land and subject to the whims of the feudal ruler. Alexander II recognises that this feudal system can't carry on if you want to see progress, and he looks at societies elsewhere that are industrialising and moving into cities, and he realises that it's holding Russia back. And so he emancipates the serfs, he sets them free, but it's not handled especially well, as you discuss in the book, and Alexander II ends up being assassinated by a terrorist group, the People's Will. And this has a profound effect on his son, Alexander III, who is repressive and reactionary again, broadly. And so the pendulum comes to swing, continuing to swing between autocratic czars and ministers who want to control the population, and forward thinkers who want to bring Russia into line with the rest of Europe, economically, socially, technologically. But ultimately, none of them can deal with the changing demographics in society. 
Eventually, it all comes to a head in 1917 with the war. And I think it's important to remember about the Bolsheviks that their rise is really incredibly meteoric, like they rise so quickly. They go in 10 years from being this obscure group, most of their leaders are arrested or exiled. They don't have any real political power, and they're meeting up and discussing their ideology in obscure London cafes. You know, if they existed today as that state, you probably wouldn't have heard of them. But ten years later, this small cadre of people has taken over a huge state, a vast empire, at an incredibly critical and unstable time in its history. So it's an astonishing historical event that only really seems inevitable in hindsight, with the benefit of hindsight. Do you think that so much of how they view science and technology is actually shaped by the circumstances these revolutionaries lived in before they took over? I think that their cult of optimism derives directly from a 19th century idea of scientism. In many ways, Bolshevism is yawningly conventional from a philosophical point of view. They embraced an idea that all sciences as they existed at that point, were picking away at understanding the mechanisms of a real world. And that as they advanced, they would start to interconnect. And at the point at which the different disciplines of science interconnected, their specialist vocabularies could fall away as they found themselves able to explain each other's phenomena according to their own terminology. So to take a take a relatively straightforward example, as the sciences of psychology on the one hand and physics on the other hand developed, they would be able to meet in the middle in an area that we can roughly call physiology. So you'd be able to explain how atoms operated to form molecules, how molecules could form organic chains, how these chains could um, replicate uh, eventually uh, creating um, uh, more complex engines like cells, how the cells themselves would start to communicate, so you're starting to move into physiology, how bodily systems would function in order to maintain equilibrium, um, and not only physical equilibrium, but psychic equilibrium, so now we're entering the territory of Ivan Pavlov, and everything should be explainable in terms of everything else. And this was a typical 19th century conceit, if you like, a, a, a dream. And the revolution happens pretty much on the day when all the smart money goes, oh, it's not going to work. We've just read Einstein's paper and we've just been looking at what Marie Curie is doing. And we're also aware of the problems that uh, Charles Sherrington is having, um, trying to understand animal behavior um, and the physiological behavior of experimental animals. And we're suddenly realizing that mathematics and rationality and scientific methodology to the extent that we've developed it are wonderful tools that unpicking the real world. But the world is not mathematical. The world is not rational and the world is not scientific. And these things are never going to add up add up they're just going to be really really valuable lenses through which we look at the chaos that's out there and this was a screaming nightmare for um lenin in particular who whose idea of revolution was entirely bound up with materialism he wanted there to be a material world with no spiritual dimension to it this was the 
founding dogma of uh, uh, Russian Marxism. And when the Kania colleagues of his, in particular, um, Alexander Bogdanov, said, you know, this this is not the end of the world. We know the real world is out there, even if we're not going to get a full description of the real world. There, there isn't a huge. No, Lenin was having none of it and uh, wrote um, a, a, an extraordinary uh, book called uh, Materialism and Empirio-Criticism. He wrote it in the British Library in the white heat and tried to bribe the printer, something like 5,000 rubles to get it printed early. Uh, gave it the most brilliant um, passive-aggressive subtitle, um, A Statement of Love. Um, and it was basically an attack on Alexander Bogdanov, in which he says, and this is his only work of philosophy, really, it's the only way you can really call philosophical, he, in his desperation not to allow any kind of idealism, any kind of nuance, any kind of difficulty or, 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 or vagueness into a scientific account, he throws out not only Aristotle, he also throws out, he, he, he even goes to the extent of throwing out Plato in saying that what we perceive of the world is an exact mirror image of reality. Now, this is philosophically illiterate, as any, any scientist of perception will tell you, let alone philosopher. And it would in any other circumstance have been forgotten as something of an embarrassment. But what actually happened was that this became a, a, a vital dogma for the, the Bolshevik cause. Um, as the difficulty of running a country as essentially a cult that has just been, you know, it's a dog that caught the car. It's a tiny cultish group that is now running one of the largest empires on earth. It doesn't know how to do this. It doesn't have the resources to do this. It can only cling to power through essentially bureaucracy and violence. Um, as a consequence, it's thinking ossifies really quickly because there isn't time to speculate. There is simply not the hours in the day or the resources available to speculate or to discuss and so on. So, um, yeah, um, so these very peculiar statements of Lenin's become um, essentially dogmas because, you know, let's let's stick to what Lenin said. Let's stick to the letter of what Lenin said and what Lenin's what Lenin said leads inevitably, ineluctably to throwing uh, uh, throwing dissidents into mental hospitals by the time of uh, Leon Brezhnev. Because what Lenin has done is just denied the existence of um of of any um, in, internal subjective realm for the individual. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a very rigid philosophy where everything has to be rational and determined and linked to the material world. I think this is the aspect of the Bolshevik approach to science that your book really shed light on for me. Previously I'd seen it as, so in Russia for centuries you have small groups of intellectuals concentrated in the universities and the cities, in Moscow and St. Petersburg and places like that. And they're frustrated by the lack of progress in Russian society, the lack of its ability to modernise. And you can see that the Bolsheviks come along and they have this aspect where they say, OK, we're going to modernise Russia, we're going to put in some intense investment, we're going to focus on science and technology. And they have these grand plans to kind of forcibly modernise Russia through science. And also for communism to work, there's this concept 
which still hasn't gone away by today, by the way, people still talk about it, that the machine will end up doing all the work that humans once did. And with machines doing all the work that people once had to do, you can get abundance, you can get whatever you want in a lot of ways. You can get enough wealth that people are happy under a communist system. And this machine, I think it's viewed by Marx especially as this quite miraculous conception that eliminates the need to do work. And with the machine, you either have a communist paradise or you have a small group of capitalists who profit immensely from owning the means of production. And in that case, that in communist theory must lead inexorably to a revolution. Because if, you know, the people who own the machines become so stinking rich that the poor can't take it anymore and they overthrow them, that also leads to your communist utopia. And if this all sounds a little bit fantastical, if you just replace the machine with artificial intelligence, you can find plenty of people saying this kind of thing today. The aspect that your book really helped me with was that the reason the Bolsheviks have to believe in this kind of scientism, as you put it, this science as a religion, the reason they have to believe that things are ultimately rational and explicable by some perfect theory, providing you're willing to put in the effort and investment to understand it. Well, if you believe that things are completely deterministic like that, then Marxism suddenly becomes much more plausible as a theory. Because Marxism is historically deterministic. The revolution is inevitable. The communist utopia that follows is also inevitable. It all fits into a picture where the Bolsheviks want to say, politics isn't politics, it's science. We understand the scientific theory behind political actions. And this then gives your movement, your little movement, a legitimacy that it might not otherwise have. I mean, saying my historical philosophy, my political philosophy is historically inevitable. It kind of helps you to win the argument. Yeah, no, that's that's very well put. The the main thing to remember about uh, Bolshevism and, and the Soviet state generally is that it's our first great global experiment in scientific government. And we've made smaller, uh, almost comedic mistakes of a similar sort since uh, I was a you know I was a card carrying Blairite in the day and looking forward to um, you know uh, metricization and um, you know we can we can solve the cues to the hospitals by recording numbers and we can model this, model everything mathematically and we can actually get evidence-based policy and in the years following the new labor experiment um, we have we have come to realise that all you will do by creating a model is to create a whole set of perverse incentives that will change the landscape that you are supposed to be modelling, so that you know the world is not deterministic because there is no such thing as linear cause and effect. There's only circular cause and effect. Everything affects everything else all the time. The irony is, of course, that the first person to state this. In a, in a really coherent and exciting and uh, practical way was Friedrich Engels, Marx's, Marx's friend, who came up with um, quite a brilliant um, bit of hand-waving. You can't really call it a philosophy. It's certainly not a scientific method, methodology, but it's a wonderful metaphysical conceit, I suppose, uh, which goes by that ghastly name, dialectical materialism. <laughs> and essentially, dialectical materialism is everything changes stupid. And from that statement, you can pretty much unpack everything that dialectical materialism is. And, of course, anyone in the life sciences, even then, looked at this idea 
everything changes, everything has a history, everything affects everything else. It's chaos out there, guys. We're picking through it. All the all the biologists uh, of the day went, yes, and you know this is yeah we can accept dialectical materialism in fact we've been doing it for years without calling it anything um the physicists throw their hands up in horror um and still do to a certain degree but you do have remarkable minds within the physics community like lee smolin saying no time is not a dimension time you know the universe does have a history and is introducing ideas of dialectical materialism even into physics so you know it's an idea that has legs it's an idea that has been useful it's an idea that promotes debate coherent debate the, the tragedy is that this conception of the way the world works and the kind of questions you have to ask um becomes a blunt weapon with which the Soviet state, particularly after the Second World War, beats its bourgeois opposition. And at that point, when people are being accused of failing to uh, factor in dialectical materialism, these words mean, scientifically speaking, or philosophically speaking, absolutely nothing. It's just a political blunt weapon. And you're reading this stuff thinking, how did such an extraordinary idea or set of ideas or an extraordinary set of expressions of an idea end up being used as a stick with which to destroy you know to destroy people to destroy their careers to have them exiled occasionally to have them shot god help us it's um it's probably the <laughs> the saddest part of writing this book was to see this idea being um ossified to the point where it's um, uh, being used as a political weapon. It's very, very sad. And in many ways, that is one of the tragedies that comes through very strongly in the book about the USSR. You have people come in who have some interesting ideas, and they want to invest in science and technology, and they want to modernise Russia, which badly needs it in 1917. And they come in, and initially they have some very good ideas, particularly before the Civil War and later Stalin made things a lot more autocratic. But we see some very revolutionary ideas about social equality, the most repressive right-wing regime in Europe becomes one of the most liberal socially for a very brief period of time before swinging back again. I think that's why a lot of people see the USSR as tragic, and maybe they even try and uh, rehabilitate its reputation now. Not just because of what it became afterwards, but because of what it seems it could have been. It is rather like the Paris Commune. It's, it's, it's a period that is sufficiently short that its own shortcomings can be neglected. Um, and that's, you know, it, that's what the expression beautiful lie refers to. Um, um, he, there are some wonderful examples of some really radical thought, which ironically have, have, have found fertile ground since the Soviet experiment within liberal capitalist societies, particularly America, particularly Western Europe, because these are the societies that have the leisure and the resources and the institutions available to perform these experiments. Uh, there's uh, a classic example is the white nursery. The white nursery was created to deal with the um, 
orphan problem after the Civil War. It was run by Sabina Spielrein, who had been a pupil of uh, both Freud and Jung and was, you know, the, 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 the forgotten third of that triumvirate, if you like. Um, and Vera Schmidt, who was a very talented uh, psychologist, who was also the wife of a, uh, uh, a government minister, Otto Schmidt. And so this experiment in education and bringing up children who were traumatized, who were forgotten, who had no resources, who'd been living on the street or prostituting themselves to survive, was an absolutely extraordinary um, experiment in early years education, which got a lot of international interest and actually resembles if you know it, uh, the, the experiment of uh, Summerhill, you, you find these experimental schools cropping up at around the same time in various parts of the world, essentially to deal with the catastrophic demogra- uh, demographic consequences of the First World War when, when so many fathers died. Um, and yet, at the same time, this experiment is taking place where there are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of children to be looked after and it's a really expensive experiment at that it looks after one of uh, joseph stalin's sons but it 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 takes in just a handful of actual um orphan children from the streets um it's run by people who are looking to transform the concept of family so that um um Marriage ceases to be ownership and children are held in common, which is a lovely idealistic idea. But when you've got tens to hundreds of thousands of children wandering the streets, pickpocketing and prostituting themselves, maybe undermining the traditional family is not such a good idea. So you can actually see where the forces of reaction are coming from. It's it's not hard to sympathize actually with these forces of reaction because you don't have the resources to to muck about at this point uh, lenin himself once got hold of a newspaper um where one of his colleagues one of his younger and more idealistic colleagues was talking about how engineering would be transformed to a truly socialist engineering and it sort of goes off you know goes off in the, that kind of territory that we're familiar with from you know, humanity's PhDs today, <laughs> which when he scrawls across the article in baseball, and who's going to build the locomotives then? Um, and he's right. <laughs> he's just right. Um, the, ex- the, exper- the experiments that survived are still being discovered and, and renewed. It's, it's remarkable. Um, you can't walk into a robotics department these days without having someone talk about uh, Lev Vygotsky who was a child psychologist who said, actually, the model that we picked up from Jean Piaget, that children go through an autistic period where they think only of themselves and then start to integrate with society, is nonsense. We discover ourselves by integrating with others. If there aren't others around us, we will never develop a self. And a self is developed through an internalized conversation that we have already had with the outside world. And about five years ago, actually probably a bit more now, a decade ago, Bright Spark picked up Lev Vygotsky and went, oh, robotics, that's what we need. 
<laughs> suddenly we can talk about agency in a way that's 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 sensible and is actually useful to us and so Vygotsky is actually uh, regarded now as one of the founding fathers of you know certain aspects of development in artificial intelligence um whereas originally he was just trying to look after you know kids orphaned after the first world war and it took that long for ideas that were that radical to find their home to find their place and to find a country with the resources to be able to play with them that's a fascinating story and one that does speak to this bolshevik impatience to change things you think of other revolutionary movements in the past like the french revolution and they say okay now we have a cult of the supreme being and also all of your time is going to be metric and divided into 10 months to the year 10 hours with 100 minutes and so on but you get this reaction from the rate of change that you're seeking to impose on society when people aren't ready for it. The And the, that rate of change makes it more likely that you will end up with uh, an autocratic government because at times of chaos, people reach for a strong leader. And they're not wrong to do so. It makes perfect sense. When the Titanic is sinking and the water's coming through the bulkhead, you reach for the person, the strongest person in the room with the clearest instructions who's going to tell you what to do in order to survive. Yeah, there's no time for a lengthy debate about the philosophy of sinking and so on. Yeah, yeah. So um, so Stalin was the, you know, the classic example of someone who creates chaos in order to be the strong person who can get you through the chaos. Um, and the purges of the 1930s, and particularly the Great Purge of 1937, essentially you never knew who was going to get the knock on the door because there was no reason for it. That is the point. And one of the, just just if I may, uh, one of the things, one of the difficult parts of writing this book was to deal with first and first-hand accounts and also the accounts written by the children of people who had been killed. Um, who would say uh, he died because or she died because she was a uh, physicist and the 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 state disagreed with with Einstein and so she lost her job and she died in Siberia or whatever whatever the story happens to be and that is a, an awful tragedy it's an historical fact it is an atrocity that has to be recognised but the element that doesn't quite hold water is the idea that this person lost their job or even lost their life because they were a physicist, because they were a geneticist, because they were something. Nobody wants someone to die for no reason. Nobody wants their relative to die for no reason. And so there are a lot of what, if I wanted to be unkind, I would call myths about the Soviet relationship to science and how the Soviets mistreated science. Often it's not about mistreating science at all. It's not even about mistreating scientists. It's about mistreating people who are old, old enough to remember the days before the revolution, old enough to have acquired some money, old enough to have been brought up in a state where you could actually buy into the nobility and they had. And so a lot of you have a lot of stories which attempt to dignify the dead through saying that it was through their work and through their thought that they came a cropper under the usually the Stalinist regime. Tragedy is they were often just picked alphabetically. And dealing with that is was really gut wrenching, I have to say. 
Yeah, so I researched, before I started the physics show, I did a lot of shows about Stalin's life. Reading accounts about the terror, not only the arbitrary nature of the punishment, but what happened afterwards. I remember reading this first-hand account of a young girl whose parents were both picked out on the same day. She returned home to find that they'd both been arrested, and of course no reason was ever given for these arrests. Her brothers were adopted and taken into state orphanages. She'd write to try and find out about their conditions, how they were doing, but her letters wouldn't get through. She wrote the state about the fate of her parents, and she was just told that they'd been sentenced to five years. That's what everyone got, the same letter. You've been sentenced to five years. A few years later, with de-Stalinization, she was informed that they had both died of, quote, heart attacks while in the gulag. And it took until the collapse of communism in the 1990s, like 50 years later, for her to discover the truth that both of her parents had been shot almost immediately after being arrested. Her entire life seeking the truth about the event that her family was torn apart by, and she never found it. No reason was ever given. And, you know, chances are the NKVD who were arresting them just had a quota. They had quotas they had to fill, and they probably just picked their names out of the phone book for all we know. So I can completely understand why people want to romanticise it and say that people died when they were standing up for their beliefs or scientific principles, when in reality, almost the tragedy of it was that it was so arbitrary. It could be something as arbitrary as telling a joke, having foreign-sounding surnames, you know. And even, of course, during this great terror, just filling in the quotas of people that had to be executed, which in turn led to this huge mechanism for denunciations, whereby people would denounce each other as traitors just for petty acts of revenge. And also, and also getting promotions. I mean, the, the, the history of the Russian Empire and of the Soviet Union in particular would have been quite different if someone had thought to institute pensionable age. But there was no retirement age. And that means if you want to get promoted, you have to stab someone in the back. And time, time and time again, people were stabbed in the back in order that some other person would have enough food on the table for their new child. Um, it, it is a case of creating a system in which ordinary ambition and ordinary personal antipathies of which there, you know, are, are endless numbers in the world become, um, become a cause for homicide. Um, I don't think, I, I think it's setting aside people who were driven mad by their role, uh, like Joseph Stalin, who was quite clearly sent, you know, sent mad by the job he was trying to do. There, there's almost nobody in this account who comes across, who you can stumble across tomorrow. You, you look at someone like uh, Trofim Lysenko, who you know, is is pretty much the poster boy for the various catastrophes in in Soviet food production. Who was instrumental in the um, expulsion of a, a generation of uh, geneticists, and indeed, in the end, instrumental in the um, uh, criminalization of the very discipline of genetics. The more you read about him, the more you realise I've I've met this guy. I've met this man. He's everywhere. It's just that no one else has actually thought of putting him in charge of the food supply of an empire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was the first part of my interview with Simon Ings. If you want to find out more about his work, you can buy Stalin and the Scientists online and at all good bookstores. And he's online at www.simonings.com and also tweets occasionally at Simon Ings. 
Next time, we'll talk about genetics and science in general in the USSR, and what lessons the science in the USSR might have for the future. Thanks very much for listening. If you've enjoyed this show, please tell at least one other person about it. If you keep doing that, we will expand exponentially like a nuclear explosion and soon take over the entire world. And if you want to tell them where to go, you can tell them to go to www.physicspodcast.com. You can tell them that we're on Spotify now, we're on iTunes, we're on Twitter, at PhysicsPod, where I'm constantly posting links to the new episodes. And, you know, thanks very much, all of you, for listening. Until next time, then.